You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. You sit in the thing, I'll call you up. <laughs> Coming to you alive from VRTO, the virtual augmented reality world expo at the Toronto Media Arts Centre in beautiful downtown Toronto, Canada. This is where we stop using technology to optimize human beings for the market and start optimizing technology for the human future or even the present. It's not too late to make people a favored species, the subject of civilization's story rather than the objects. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, VRTO's founder and host, Karim Maliki Sanchez. Karim will be helping us distinguish the real hope from the endless hype around these technologies, showing us how the digital landscape offers something much better than escape. It offers new access to one another. We'll also meet virtual and augmented reality artist Amelia Winger Bearskin, who develops cultural communities at the intersection of art, technology, and education. She's going to help us see how artificial intelligence, rather than simply replacing authors or screenwriting, can foster nonlinear, decentralized storytelling with true generational impact. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. <laughs> So we're doing something a little unique. We're using this time to do a Team Human podcast, which is me sort of interrogating uh, the world here uh, through the lens of Team Human. This is really two worlds not colliding, but, but intersecting or making love. Two communities. Um, one, the Team Human community, which is sort of dedicated to creating or preserving a place for human beings in the digital future. And... Uh, an encounter with people who are creating terrific simulations um, and new sorts of, uh, in some cases, post-human experiences. It's an interesting, I was interesting listening to the, some of the presentations today, though. You know, on the one hand, it feels like VR has come such a long way. And on the other hand, I feel like these are the same conversations that we were having in 1991 and 1992. It's, it's less demonstration of what we're doing and more talking about well, what this might be and what then it'll be and then maybe it'll, we could use it for this and it's not really hype because there's this and it, it's interesting. But it's a cycle, right? So VR is making another comeback. Here we are. Is this, is this the time? For me, VR feels different than it did 40 years ago. It feels, and I'm just going to be honest, it feels a little more commercial and it's not it's not really that. It's not really just that it's like more ad-centered. It's something more 
directional. And that's kind of what I want to get into here. It's sort of the bias of this medium and whether we're doing something genuinely new with it or whether we're really just amplifying the biases of the media that we've come from. It's, it's kind of a, a, a directional thing. So when VR was just a little inkling in Eric Gellickson or Jaron Lanier's mind, it felt as if it was going to be people using technology to do things. People using virtual reality to express themselves in, in a new way. And it's becoming, it's feeling to me more like we have these experiences that are going to do technology to people to create sorts of experiences, but it's technology acting on us more than us acting through technology. So it's sort of less creative output and more advertising input. You know, it's, it's less, it's feeling less like an early digital culture. And by digital, I mean the digits, the hands-on, the real digital was a productive culture, a little bit less early digital and a little bit more like late stage television. And that, that's a tricky one. I mean, this, this debate, this divide about VR, like I've been saying, goes all the way back to the late 80s. I remember the first time I did VR was at the Mondo 2000 house. Mondo 2000 was this sort of psychedelic technology alt culture magazine out of out of Berkeley. In the, it followed a magazine called Reality Hackers, which followed a magazine called High Frontiers. So it was the psychedelic thread of the cyber, it was the cyberdelic movement, really, is what we called it. And um, there were two guys who were doing VR then in, in that community. One was Jaron Lanier, and he was considered at the time kind of the big sold out one. Because he was at VPL, was this big company. He was making VR for uh, architects who were making buildings and stuff. And then there was this other guy, a friend of Timothy Leary with long blonde hair named Eric Gellickson, who went out with Sarah Drews, this crazy, witchy, wonderful, smart drugs concoctor woman. And he had a different uh, VR, a cheap VR. that We called it Sensate. Do you guys remember Sensate? It was like this billiard ball thing on a thing. It was really crude. But... It was small enough and cheap enough that he could bring it to the house and we could all put it on and play with it and move around in sort of a, a, a graphical world as complicated as asteroids. But you were there. We were doing it. It was, it was there. It was that opening. It was like dropping something powerful. And it was, it was such a countercultural moment that it was strange. We didn't realize just how expensive VR was going to be, I think, was part of our problem. And because it's so expensive, we ended up deploying VR for things that were capital intensive. You think about the first big uses of VR, architecture. What's more capital intensive than that? I always look at architects as artists and think, yeah, they're artists except for the fact that their pieces cost $500 million to make. Right? So you want to be an artist, but you also have to find, what, a hospital or an AT&T or someone who's going to fund this thing. It's like, why don't you just make a piece of cardboard and express yourself, and you don't need that kind of capital. And the other one who was playing with VR at the time, I don't know if you remember, Warren Robinette. He was at uh, University of North Carolina, I think, at Chapel Hill, and he was doing the head-mounted display, is what they called it. And the application was fixing jets. I don't mean New York jets, I mean airplane, fixing actual jets. So again, it's another application for a super capital intensive thing. Here's a $400 million device that someone has to repair. So it's worth it to have VR for it, right? No one's gonna be doing VR for, you know, let's do the VR version of the Dondi comic or something. You know what I mean? You're not gonna use it for a small countercultural purpose. But for those of us who got to play with it, who were on the fringes of what seemed like was going to trickle down to the counterculture, our intention was to use VR to express or to preview designer reality. We believed that virtual reality was a test run for virtual reality. I mean, this is why only children and psychedelics people were hired by 
digital companies in the 80s and 90s because these were the only people who were comfortable imagining something that was going to come into reality. These were the only people who were comfortable with hallucinating things that would come true. And that's what VR felt like to us. I remember when Terrence McKenna first thought about, and we weren't really all using VR, but when he thought about VR, he was so excited, he said, in virtual reality, you will literally be able to see what I mean. He thought that we would move into a, a, a mode of communication like squid, where instead of having to use mouth noises to express things, right, because mouth noises come from language and all these linguistic hierarchies, you know, the words we use, there's all sorts of politics that went into the creation of language and subject-object distinctions. Your mind on English is different than your mind off English. That's why when you, you know, people go to a, a monastery and they go on a uh, a vow of silence. It's not about their ego. It's to get their brain off the operating system of English and start to experience reality in a holistic way. So VR, if I could communicate like a squid, you know, red and blue and this, and we're dancing with each other in VR, then we move into some kind of a post-linguistic total communication realm. You know, it was psychedelic, right? It was to move into what William Gibson was calling the, the consensual hallucination. I remember in uh, 1988, when I was trying to express what virtual reality was to the world, you know, this is back when people would laugh at you if you told them they'd be using email or a laptop someday. This, I mean, we were the geeks, right? This is, they looked at computers as if it was Dungeons and Dragons, right? Just a, a wasted, you know, line. If you went into computing in the 80s, your parents wept. You could have been a doctor. You could have been a lawyer. You're going to throw your life away with games, we shouldn't have bought that toy for him. I told you it was no good. You know, that was the moment, right? That was, that was the way it was. But I commissioned this. Uh, uh, I needed to explain virtual reality to the world, so I worked for this magazine in L.A., and I commissioned Terrence McKenna and Timothy Leary to each write a 2,000-word piece on what VR was. And I remember McKenna talked about that we're going to rebirth ourselves into a new reality. It was sort of this baby that we would be there and here, and it was about the, the renaissance of, of humanity into this new dimension. That we would be, you know the machine elves that you see on the D, when you take DMT? They're these little creatures that kind of control reality. That we would become the machine elves of our reality. And we would rebirth a new human. Leary, in that piece, said that his book, Exopsychology, was wrong. In Exopsychology, he said that human beings would embark on space migration, that that would be the next stage of human evolution. And he said, no, no. Now that he's experienced VR, that the next realm will be cyberspace, that that's where we will migrate to. We will migrate to, to the cyber. And I was with Tim Leary the first time he went into VR. And it was at a rave club in San Francisco called Big Heart City. And there was two of them. There was, there was Big Heart City and Toontown. And a guy named Brian Hughes, who worked for Intel, he was there to help market their future VR technologies. So he brought this rig, and it was like in, you know, three steamer trunks worth of stuff, really just to be a head-mounted display and a glove and then monitors. So, you know, Tim, I mean... He was, I mean, he was a showman, but he, did, he went into the VR, you know, we put the stuff on him, and he had the glove on, and everybody gathers around, the music comes down, and there's this big monitor, and then Tim goes, ooh, you know, and everything moves to the left in VR, and the whole crowd goes, ooh, and he goes, this, ooh, ah, ooh. But VR, at the time, if you were doing it, it was such a spectacle that people were, sort of, would watch you do VR. It was like this weird, over-the-shoulder sort of shot, and it was spectacle and wonderfully silly. I got to go, after that, I got to go on the Larry King show to be the guy who said, what's going on here? And he's like, Rushkoff, are you a whiz kid? Tell us, what is cyberspace? I'll never forget. What is cyberspace? And I mean, I answered, but it was patronizing, right? It was as if you know, I was a ufologist coming down. So tell us about your alien abduction, Douglas. What is cyberspace, this place we're all going to go to? And I remember, I, I remember saying to him, Larry, you're in cyberspace right now. <laughs> you know, I tried to pull a leery on him or something. But the whole frame, the set and setting around virtual reality was countercultural 
and somewhat psychedelic. And I feel partly because Wired Magazine came around and reframed the internet and the entire digital revolution as a business story, as the salvation of the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, as the long boom that's going to come and grow the market forever infinitely without... Remember that? They had the long boom and said, thanks to digital, the market's going to grow forever without interruption. And Alan Greenspan went, yeah, sounds about right. And Rand is right. They recontextualized this highly psychedelic thing with a very different set and setting. Instead of the set and setting of the counterculture and Leary and how are we going to connect together as people and make a design a reality, the set and selling setting of the internet was how are we going to use this technology to extract enough value from people and places in order to grow the stock market forever? And no wonder 40 years later why we're all having a bad trip. We are a nation where, where a society living on an essentially psychedelic substrate with a set and setting of extractive corporate capitalism. And the current revival, I mean, it feels more, maybe less, less capital intensive the way those early days were and more consumer intensive. Facebook and Oculus and gaming and entertainment and porn. It's like television with lots of surround. And it's, it's popular because it's non-threatening to business because it looks and feels more like TV. This is why the web was so much more popular than the real internet. A lot of us, when we first used the web, said, ugh, this is kind of boring compared to the net, where you really go. You know, now it's so flat and everything. You just click on something. You lose. The only thing I get to type is my credit card. It's like where, you know, the command line was considered some, you know, as if it was difficult to use, but it was what allowed you to tunnel into different realities. It, it feels like the web compared to the net. And then I wonder, and this is what I wondered when I was going to come up here, is there time for this? Do we have time to even bother with this stuff right now that we're facing extinction as a species and a planet and all these other species are going? Is there time? The only reason the way I can justify that there's time for this is that this somehow helps pull us out of the nightmare that we're in. That this somehow there's something in this. And I know it may take two or three steps of justification around it. But how can digital future immersive arts wake up society to the point where we will discard the patriarchal structures that we're living under, see the falsehood of corporate capitalism, and liberate ourselves into something uh, where, we can, where we can actually survive? You know, and one wonders, the arts themselves... You know, is there time for art itself right now? I mean, you could say there's never a time when, when there's not. But is there? And that's sort of the question I'm looking at. And I look at the most, the best, the most ethical applications of VR. And I hear people talk about them. And the construction they use is this experience will get people to blah, 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 blah. This experience will get people to feel more compassion for Palestinians. This experience will get people to understand the world and the climate. And this will get people to do that. Once you're using tech to get people to do something, you're, as far as I'm concerned, you're back in television land. right? You're using technology on the people. And we didn't know this in the early cyber days. We had rave, right? Rave was the original beautiful thing. But when you think about the rave itself, it was taking these kids, letting them come in, and then hitting them with 120 beat per minute music because it's the fetal heart rate, hitting them with the right lights, with the right sound, giving them the right drugs in order to engender all the stuff that we wanted them to get. We're going to get these kids more compassionate. We're going to get them thinking like a colonial organism. We're going to get them. It was still like electrocolate acid test, television era, doing this thing to these people. And that's where, I get, that's where I get concerned. And, you know, the most extreme of these situations, of course, is when we ask the tech to measure the results of what it's been able to get us to do and then change itself to get us to do it even more. And the better the technologies we develop for changing human behavior, the more expensive they are, the more they're going to be in the hands of the Facebooks and the Googles and all those people. I mean, they watch us, they care about what we're doing, but only to the extent that the innovations we come up with can be used to manipulate human beings. For me, the possibility, the one I get is that we as a society have lost our immune response. What art can do, what the counterculture can do, it's the same thing 
is the thing that people hate about it is the most important thing about it. The counterculture is critical. We look at mainstream, we look at whatever's up there on the TV, whatever the mainstream thing is, and we go, you know, that kind of sucks. Friends kind of sucks. Game of Thrones kind of sucks. These things kind of suck, and here's why. That's the counterculture. It's not real. It's not true. It's not, uh, we're critical. And I know it's annoying and nauseating sometimes to be critical, but we're living in a society where no one's being critical. It's gone. At least the counterculture artistic critique, it's so hard. And it's partly because there's no money. I mean, it's, it's hard. You can't open up a little store. You can't make a little thing. I mean, I'm interested to see the indie, um, the indie VR scene, you know, how indie it can get. But without that, we get the fascism. We get what we're in. So what I'm interested in is where does, where does VR and AR fit in as part of the countercultural arts effort? Can that aspect of it be retrieved? Can VR and AR be the stealth Trojan horse in the, the, the entertainment television machine? You know, can it be the, the trigger, the catalyst to revive a human age in media rather than a, a continual uh, degradation of, you know, of humans by our, by our technologies. You know, technologies right now look for exploits in human beings the way we hackers used to look for exploits in computer systems. But not here, right? Not here. VTRO. This is the VR conference that is less concerned with what or even how than why. And the beating heart at the center of this culture of purpose is Karim Maliki Sanchez. So Karim's not only the founder of VRTO, but an actor, songwriter, editor-in-chief of IndieGameReviewer.com. I love the India. Uh, the indie part of that. Maybe where to start is, I mean, you, you, you feel my concern. Yes. But the thing I really liked that you said was, how can we afford to spend time on this right now? Mm -hmm. But I, I thought of all the things that I could think to do, this would be the one that gives us a chance to look at how we think and how we have a foveated kind of view of the world and that maybe by, by analyzing how little it takes to convince us of a certain reality or paradigm, then we can start to unpack that and disassemble that and then be more adaptive. So why this now? Because I cannot think of another slip in the tectonic plates that could become available to us this late where the very nature of our consciousness is examined so thoroughly and so convincingly with low poly count. It's like putting a paper bag over a cat's head and it goes, holy shit, the universe is gone. You know, and I think, I think that that little trick, that gimmick that Tom Westerlin was talking about um, is, is like a little crack. I think that the, I think that the recalibration though that, that's happening culturally is important in, in, on so many, so many levels. Right, let me, I, let me go back, let me unpack about. some of this though. All right, so part of what you're saying is the beauty of, a, of, of VR say, may not be any particular piece of content that's thrown in there, but the, the speed and intensity with which we can be made to believe something that is weird or not true or strange or I was on Mars but I'm not, will somehow crack open our sensibility about how, the world, how, how our worldview has been manufactured and then give us maybe more authority over it. And in some ways, though, that's... Isn't that what the, what the Eastern gurus do with magic? You know, when they use magic, it's to, uh, on the one hand, for, it's to get some money because people think it's real, but for others, it's just to break open the head for a minute. Like Blair Renault says, I don't really care about VR. I just, it's not about that part of it. Right. It's about the, so the, the small town experiment. Go to a small town, you give kids from either side of the tracks the lines and they read something and, and you're the robot and you're the mother and now you're the mother and you're the robot right. and, they, and they have to do all of this role swapping and see what this exercise of flipping your consciousness and your, and your position and your stance are that quickly, right. right? To create some malleability, to create some elasticity, 
to get us out of these like rigid, uh, completely polarized ideologies that we've kind of right. And and again, there's never been something like Facebook. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Facebook is in many ways like unprecedented in modern, where you've got something that can target you that specifically, and is always improving itself and is unregulated. Right. Well, certainly faster. I mean, direct marketers had card files on American families since the you know, 1940s or 50s, even before they had computers. They would have it, and they would then find out, oh, this person got a license. They'd find your card, and they'd add it, and this is how they would know who to send mailers to, because things cost money, so they didn't want to spend 20 cents on a mailer for someone who wasn't going to need whatever the device. So they did it, but the feedback loop was much slower. It's like every quarter, maybe they would up they would update the thing where now these files are being, they're, they're talking about you right now. They're sharing your last Amazon search. Right. Oh, it's not even close to the right. same thing. I mean, and, and I mean, we are literally, that, it, the algorithm is just iterating and iterating and iterating every second. And, and the thing is, though, I'm not just making an analogy about Facebook. Facebook owns VR <laughs> on top of all that. Right. Um, they literally are subsidizing the cost of these headsets that are so cheap and so wonderful and so accessible to everybody. And this guy and that guy over there has done keynotes on this subject right. of, of, of this. But Right. You have an industry, a, a multi-trillion dollar industry that is using the most advanced technologies to try to turn our world into a giant Skinner box and not just get us to buy stuff but get us to behave more uh, uh, consistently with our algorithmically de derived consumer profile. Right, and it would be really easy to get like super alarmist and say, oh my God, Facebook is gonna turn us all into like zombies with our, these tellerable VR headsets, just like the TV thing that Mr. Zneimer had to deal with all the time and turning us all into zombies and that we're, we're gonna eat each other's brains. But, but at, at the same time, the problem is to think that VR is going to be like a TV replacement or TV plus or that AR is like, even after VR, it's like the next yeah. thing. I, I don't think that, uh, I think the point is to not think of it that way at all. Right. Instead of thinking as like the next step in some sort of line of evolving media, that it has a different function. That's what role. we would hope. Right. But right now, of course, the problem is that if television goes... If television gave way to the kind of decentralized, distributed VR creative space we're talking about, then capitalism goes. It's like we're talking about TV to real digital VR is like U.S. Treasury Department interest-bearing capital uh, monopoly money to blockchain. I mean, it's that different. It's like, it's like Confucius to Tao. It's like, you know what I mean? It's that... It's that radical a shift and they're not going to let go so easily i don't think the vr is trying to replace tv i, I think it's like not even it would be but it would be from a, it's a different media environment is what you know what McLuhan would say yeah. that that television was the medium of the 50s 60s 70s television was the dominant medium then when we got a new medium which is really the internet the previous medium becomes the content of the next medium. So just as theater became the content of television, television became the content of the internet, which is what we're just streaming Netflix. It's the main, and porn. It's the main thing sure. that is done on the internet. If VR happens, it can't just be, right, TV on digital steroids, the way the web is kind of, you know, uh, uh, Sears Roebuck catalog on digital steroids. It would, it would, have to be this other participatory, person-driven reality. There's a company called Control Labs in New York that is, for example, using the, the, the very granular, high-fidelity information that you can get from your forearm that is passing from your brain to your digits, and you can take that information and interpret it and do some pretty interesting things with that. So you, can, you connect that to like, stuff that Lee Vermeulen is doing in IoT, and all of a sudden I can turn out the lights and I can use the force. And then imagine like when everything is flooded and everything, and you can then use your mind to manipulate robots that can move mountains using VR, and all of a sudden you have these like giant mechs that are being operated with your, with your wrist. So, I mean, sure, you can watch TV and VR, and it's a wonderful airplane experience. That'll happen. I also think that 
like the little tiny tools of, of how to improve my eyesight with the convergence stuff or, or just to like um, figure out how to do a thing that I can't afford to have right now, but you know, I can develop sort of educationally like certain skills are other ways to look at VR. Like it's not like TV and this, the normal uh, teaching at me through language, but there is kind of a, like that, that spatial development that happens um, and the leveraging of tools that we can use through that. And I would, I would, I would love to go there with you, you know, but when I think about education, I think the biggest problem we have today, I have as an educator, as a college teacher, is every semester, the first day of class, more students come to me with a note saying from their doctor, please excuse Johnny from class participation because he's got an anxiety disorder. And I think, dang, what happened K through 12? Right? Where, what, the kid was on an iPad in that classroom. And I understand iPad and learning and assessment and it could be exactly to the person instead of everybody using this, this was the promise. Instead of everybody using the same damn textbook and going at the same rate, the iPad is going to be able to configure learning to the exact student and each student is going to get exactly what they need, when they need it, and then the assessment always works out better. Why? Well, because it's the computer assessing its own metrics, but the, the assessment outcomes are always good. And what's happened is the divine function of education, which is, you know, to give the person what they need to become a lifelong learner, to originally to give the coal miner the dignity of being able to return from work at the end of the day and read and appreciate a novel or participate in, in democracy, you know, it's become an extension of work. We start looking at the classroom as, oh, you know, great, what are the, you know, he's going to get good utilitarian skills, we're going to train them better, but we lose the live mimesis between the student and the teacher. So it's like in the classroom, I'm, I'm, and I'm a pro-tech person, but I've become like so anti-tech in the classroom because I want the student to have the experience of what does a human being look and act like when they are learning? That's the best thing a student can get. They have a teacher who's in front of them whose body and mind is, is learning, and they go, oh, how do I model? What is, is sort of that live mimesis, you know, which is part of when, if people are able, even right now, to look at pictures of other human beings across a fence in Mexico and say they're not humans, you know, then somehow media has done a poor job. You know, and I don't know how to get, how to activate the humanity other than, than through live rapport. So I look and I say, great, so the doctor's going to do a surgery because the only one who can do it is in Berlin and my kid is in California or something. And Sure, use your virtual scalpel. You know, and that's always great. All medicines are great for sick. You know, all Facebook groups are wonderful for people with an odd disease who can't find someone else who has it. And the 12 people around the world who have the disease can now be in a group and talk together right. and all. So for compensatory, as a compensatory mechanism, I'm always like, yay, yay, yay. But then when I hear it going just this you know, to help kids learn to, you know. Like, well, let we, me qualify we got Tinker Toy for that. that. I yeah. mean, first of all, I, I think that um, what is it that you think right now between us is different than uh, like telepresence? If I could see all of the, the minor little tilts in your head and, and the movement of your hands and the exact fingerprint that you give off with every twitch of your eyes, what's the different, what is that ethereal element? I think that's the there's some there's I think even when you get every twitch, and even if we create you know the av a physical avatar, it's in it even has the heat and whatever every single there'll always be another. Uh, there's always something else, you know. Even pheromones, something, body heat. and then those pheromones. The but the the art of the synthetic hair pheromones then differ from the real pheromones just by something because the artificial pheromones you're going to have to say are you going to use 14.167 micrograms of ferro of ferrochrome of, of pheromone one or or 0.0317 it's because you're going to have to find you're going to have to pick that that human beings i still feel our reality exists in the space between the numbers it between the ticks and no matter how high resolution we make it it's 
we lose it. Even, you know, Jaron Lanier used to say that he felt like one great thing about VR is that it's going to teach us that better VR gets, the better we're going to get at distinguishing between VR and reality. So I think there's always going to be. And yeah, if you want to go there, I'll go magic. I'll go occult if I have to. Oh, no, to, to please, say, please right. do. But, <laughs> but I will, to say there's something about our, even if they're just meat suits that are receiving. That but that are is the point receiving, about virtual reality. Yeah. The point about virtual reality is that we only see through evolutionary means, the green that we need to see or the, the shape of a train so we don't get in front of it. It doesn't look like a train. It's not right. actually green. That's just the human thing that humans do right. to survive. So probably around you right now, there's this giant tentacle-like aura of just stuff that's connected to Saturn. And nobody here can see it because we would lose our minds and we would die. So... VR is a way of actually demonstrating that process. And so the thing that I need to feel about you is right. all of that like cosmic dark matter mesh that's out there. That's probably super making it awesome. But here's the thing. Now, Ellie Rene has got this piece about trans uh, men that are in their apartments that he shot on a depth kit that's like super lo-fi. But the thing about it that's so palpable is that you're in their apartment with their things that are there in the inner sanctum and you're you're three feet away from a person and it's in an intimate moment that it would take a lot of beats to get to in terms of trust to somehow get into that conversation that that Iram was able to get by photog by photographing them for 10 years so all of a sudden I have this different relationship in a spatialized embodied way to subject matter that maybe never even put in front of me in a way where I'm like, I'm in your presence. There was another piece that um, Philip Plow made with Brenda Colonna called In His Presence about being in the presence of Jesus Christ. And you're in all of these meditative, people are like, Jesus VR, that's so neat. So you're in these like meditative gardens and there's waterfalls and, and, and there's like scriptures that are kind of randomly chosen and then and generated. And you feel this kind of sopophoric, mellow, you know, and you start, you downshift because you're there with this intention to be in the presence of a holy sort of Christ-like entity, right? doesn't matter what you think about right. it, just that that's the intention that's set. And then eventually there's this beautiful willow tree and it's like flowers and lotuses. And then this actor who looks like this white Jesus with the beard thing shows up in front of it and he's like, hello. And like, here we are together and let's spend this time together breathing. And it's just like people weep because they just needed that like tap and they go <laughs> because of the presence and, and, the, and, and the way that it pulls you mentally into this framework to at least begin to accept or contemplate that sort of relationship. And spatialized media affords that opportunity. It doesn't have to be 24 hours a day. Right. Like the thing about television, then the reason it doesn't die is because when I go home, I actually don't want to work at it. I just want to lay on the couch and go, ah, for as long as it takes for me to fall asleep and wake up and dream and wake up and do whatever, and it's working for me, and the advertisers are paying for this, this, this programming. But VR is worky. Like it's, it's like an active, worky-type thing, and that's why I don't think it's like television. And I think that even though I can't yet capture the universal dark mesh thing in VR, I can at least create these like avatars and these effigies that give me an opportunity to rotate and start to move towards those things in the meat verse. And maybe then I'll get closer to those things. And then is that to where their we want to go night. with it though? It's funny. I, I mean, when I, when I think about, you know, Terrence McKenna's view of virtual reality, it wouldn't be to try to convince people that, that other person's really there. I mean, unless you're using it for porn or something, but then it, that's a compensatory social, you know, sadness. I mean, it, if we're really going to have virtual reality, the idea would be let's create a reality that we can't have sure. in life. I want to, you know, that shows things differently. When, my, when I'm getting mad, my whole self starts to become, you know, we're in some, you know, Octavia Butler, you know, universe or something. And you know what I mean? Let's, let's, let's go there. 
I, I remember when the this wave of VR, like in 2014, people started just making stuff, like making all sorts of demos and shovelware, and like just, oh, that works, so I'm gonna make another one like it and another one. Um, and I thought, wow, everything is trying to be so overwhelming. It's like, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> and I thought the world is just so rich. It's so detailed. It's so highly, beautifully textured. Like maybe one thing for like a person like me who grew up with a total anxiety disorder is like to actually just be reductive and just take it down and less and less and less. And let me be in a singular spatialized embodied space that has like far less stimulation and then let me put each piece back together well, i'm just saying as an yeah. example like these things or you know if, if you're scared of driving the exposure therapy thing and there's all of these um systems that you can be used you know it's not just about one or the other it's all it's yeah. all of the, it's like just saying the internet is like really great for for b for bbs's or something i mean one of the one of the great rules and i, I want to bring uh, amelia uh, wing our bearskin up to, to help help us talk about this. Um, and I'll, I'll bring up this question, then introduce you. Is there's a there was a science fiction? Um, well, I might as well introduce you now. Uh, so Amelia is a is an artist, technologist, and organizer. She's founder of Idea New Rochelle, a new arts and technology well now established arts and technology district with projects and residencies in AR, VR, and AI. She founded the Stupid Hackathon, has works in the permanent collections of the Guggenheim, and is one of the um, Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma Deer Clan. She may be best known for her proprioception challenging VR project, which is what I want to talk about because I got to play with that. Your hands are feet. Um, so please put your feet together for uh, Amelia Winger Bearskin. Thank you so much. What, what, he made me think of this because I was, I was thinking the way you were describing VR as maybe close to reality, but with one tweak. It's the way um, when, you're, when you're working on like a science fiction project for, for TV, the, they always want it to be like, it's a world just like ours, except, right? Except cloning works or except there's aliens so that you can basically, so you can just shoot in Toronto and not worry about anything except the one, the one tweak. But it's also a way to create a very familiar world and, and have it be um, odd. To me, what you did with VR is kind of like, the reason I like like asteroids and space invaders. It's just, just take away all of it and give me the one thing that we're playing with here. So your hands are your feet. Yeah. Is basically, that everything's not, did you look down? And it's like your hands are your feet. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, it's like so, but that's how you get the most profound hit, I think. I want something that helps me understand myself because I think that um, I'm part of a collective unconsciousness, which is beautiful and powerful. And if I make artwork that doesn't help someone else encounter themselves, then I don't think I'm doing anything very interesting. And it does. I mean, and, it, and you basically just threw up one simple proprioceptive flip. You just were playing, I guess. Or were you like, do you have a whole trip out thought on it? No, I like to play. I like to be stupid. I like to play. I like to dream. And I like to remember what it was when I was a kid and I encountered something for the first time. And usually the most profound encounters I had were with nature or with another human. So I like to take those and play with those. Yeah. Because looking at your hand as a foot or your foot as a hand, I imagine that's what it's like for like a four month old. Yeah. Looking at, what the heck is this? What is this? When I, I mean, it's tremendous to, to, I mean, all of us have had these conversations with a child where they just say something that's so true and so obvious and it breaks your heart because it's so beautiful. And if, if we can do anything with any of these damn things that we create, whether it's technology or a system or anything, if we could do something that makes us have that awe and remember what it was to approach something with... Um, absolute beauty and joy, that's pretty damn cool. Right. And then it opens you up in this whole other... Well, there is that novelty other. aspect that we've seen, in, you know, vacation simulator where uh, 
people just do one weird thing over and over again. They they can photocopy their own hand and they just keep photocopying their hand or they just play with the, the, the toys in the, in the little virtual tub. But we love it. I mean, kids love going and running this little convenience store and, and then just seeing what else can happen, like what can break. And I remember this poem when I was a kid about, about like uh, dinosaurs with green cheese teeth and some other random thing and plugging things into the wrong sockets and seeing what lights up or blows up and how valuable it was to be given that permission to say, well, what if everything I know is wrong? Right. And to live through it. And live through it. <laughs> and, and you think when you're a kid that you do. You're, you're like, oh, yeah, I run in any direction and almost into walls, but they don't realize that somebody grabbed you by the armpits and, and you went in that direction. And VR gives you that permission. Well, it should, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't yet, and, and not in all cases. But in something like VR chat, it, it's the good old thing of, like, give a man a mask and he'll show you his true self. And so you've got people that are in any kind of avatar, and if they like that one, they can clone it and make themselves into it, and they can manifest like the Cookie Man and and any other thing that they want. But as Sir Moore is showing, and that uh, you know he's got half a million YouTube viewers that just want to see people be as sincerely, authentically candid about their most painful moments as possible. They don't have any fear of that, and it's and it's able to be that way because they have these means. Now, machinima was the same, and we've seen this over and over again. So that's not the big surprise, but there's no reason to say that because it didn't work 25 years ago, so like we should stop, or it's this thing over and over. No, it's not. This has never happened before. This day has never happened before. We're, we're just moving towards this thing, which is getting better, and it's getting stronger, and it's getting faster, and we should not abandon it. And when I first talked to you about this, you said, ah, VR, murmur, murmur. And I said, well, there's two choices. You can say murmur, murmur. I know who you are. I know how deep you've been in VR for this long. But I said, you either walk away or you get in and you talk about it and you, and you go with us and figure, and you with everybody else and we all figure it out. I think it's just an enormously valuable, safe zone to try out really ridiculous things to see what it teaches us. Now, right. the problem is that it's not just chemistry. You can't just mix random things in a bottle and go, wow, neat, because it's made by us. It has its intrinsic biases because it's only gonna be as, as wide reaching as the technology can allow. And that is the problem, is that it's an artificial sort of infinite universe. But I also want to get to, I want to get to something else Amelia was saying. You use the term collective unconscious, right? That you're one person in this, in this whole thing. And that, that also goes to the core of your use of these technologies, which is towards decentralized storytelling. And then real world community participation. Yeah, yeah I have, you know, I like to be a pretty non-serious person. I make lots of jokes. Um, and so I say these things and most people laugh because they think I'm joking and that's fine because I like when people laugh at my jokes but I don't believe in time and I don't believe in being an individual and those are just true things for me Right. Um, I, and because of that I act accordingly I stand in opposition of minute measurements of time because I don't believe in it and I think that's an act of transgression and I also act as though I am part of a collective and not an individual because I believe it's the truth and so because of that I believe that storytelling is decentralized. I think it has been in, you know, for sure in the Iroquois culture and the Haudenosaunee culture for thousands of years, we've had a decentralized concept of storytelling. Um, and I believe that it's still here. It hasn't gone anywhere. We, that's still how we tell stories. And I think it's important to understand how stories function in a healthy society, rather than saying a story is going to be radically altered by XYZ technology. It's rather for me, more important to think, well, how does storytelling activate a healthy society and sustain and become a powerful immune system? I love that, that, that concept that you, that you spoke about today. Um, how does storytelling help ha us have a healthy immune system, right? And then if we understand those positive um, effects that it can have, then we can see, okay, how could VR help with this? How could it, maybe it doesn't, okay? If it doesn't, then maybe I don't wanna focus on it in my life. But actually I think it does, and some of those things are why I use it. Um, I think it's similar to hypnotism, right? It has like a minor, effect, but for some people it can be very positive. But I don't think um, it's going, 
I don't want to participate in something that will be a radical mind control device. Right. I mean, it's interesting. Because not p- good. <laughs> part of what part of what fed me up with theater. I was a theater yeah. person. Part of what part of what fed me up was that it was too expensive for people to go to. Totally. And, and elitist. And then the yep. internet came. Everyone can play. It's going to be great. So I switched. But the other thing that pissed me off about theater was following one dude on their Aristotelian journey up something. In other words, everybody yeah. watching the dude uh, get into trouble and then coming up with the answer. And the way you talk about story is it's post-Aristotelian, if you want it. It's no longer... Pre, long, pre. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> We've been it's around for a long a time. It's not a machine. It's not... It's story yeah. as machine yeah. to take a character through a journey and then the audience vicariously through this narrow experience. You talk about story as space, almost the way we did back in Dungeons and Dragons days. Yeah, well, because I have to recognize that you are an intelligent, amazing, beautiful part of my collective. And so I'm not telling a story at you. I'm saying, dude, this is... Cool. You want to do this with me? That's what it has to be. This weird invitation. Yeah. Otherwise, it's nothing. If right. it's not an invitation, Otherwise just say, dream with me, yeah. talk with me, believe right. with me, build with me, dream in my dream. Now, this is both very new and very old. That's right. It's very old. I mean, and that's where that, that's it's why it's so interesting that you are both uh, a, a voyager from the future and a voice from the indigenous past at the same time. Well, you know, I, I love Kamal Sinclair. I think we all know her. And she, I love when I hear her talk and she talks about we're, we're really paying the price in this specific, you know, people say this is the fourth industrial revolution. Blah, blah, blah. Well, we're paying the kind of price with not including indigenous voices in the last industrial revolution. And that price is climate change, right? Like we yeah. didn't include specific voices because we were busy colonizing or genociding or, or all these killing, fun right? things, yeah. you know, yeah, 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 fun <laughs> things. Um, and so we didn't include them because you can't include the people you're trying to oppress. But um, what will happen if we include indigenous voices in this beautiful future or not so beautiful future? Um, And I think about our cosmologies, like every um, indigenous person that I talked to about their cosmologies and my cosmologies, we all talk about being people who are of the stars, who are, are, are just beings that are part of a larger cosmic ocean. We all have our different sort of flavors and colors that we talk about that. But all of our origin stories are always of us coming from something else. We're not even, it's, we don't even believe that human beings are the only beings, right? Like we're, we're and so I think we've been keeping our culture through these decentralized storytelling methods, they haven't been erased. We're still here. That deserves a round of applause. Thank you for just saying that. Um, we're still here. And so and so I think allowing us to participate, we have to recode our message in, in all these different mediums. That's how we've survived. We say, oh, well, we're not going to use wampum shells anymore. We're going to use glass shells. Okay, great. I'll use that. Oh, now we're going to use holograms. Okay, I'll use that. Okay, now we're going to use VR. Okay, I'll use that. We adapt so that we can encode the messages that we have that we've learned for thousands of years and um, we learn them from the planet that we're on, right? So I think it's important to include the way in which we tell stories, not even necessarily the content of our stories. It's really the form that we're helping to encode in all of these different forms. Um, And that's why I don't like to give too much power to any specific kind of medium, because I'm like, we're human beings, we're gonna make different mediums, and I hope to God that they capture the best of us. And if they don't, fucking forget about them. Let's move on to something else, you know? Do you find so far that that these technologies are giving you sort of new ways to bring people into story space? Totally, totally. I mean. Look, I have have a Zoomer. You have a Zoomer. (laughs) My child, he does not watch anything that came out of a studio. He doesn't listen to anything that came out of a label. He is not entertained by anything that would touch an ad dollar. It's weird. He only communicates to his friends, and they play Dungeons and Dragons on paper in my house, right? And he's not an unconnected Zoomer. I mean, he's sitting there in VR chat and all this stuff, right? But that he, he doesn't buy into this specific message and he's not unique like he has a group of other smelly sweaty 17 year olds that come over to the house and they're all the same way it's not like oh my kid is this I mean of course I'm his mom I think he's special but he is really of his generation they're not interested in um in like having a story that is told to them they are participants of a community that they're building and do you get concerned that time is running out see I don't believe in time 
and even units. No, I mean, and yeah. The re the reason why I think it's important for us, and I don't. It's fine if no one else here. I mean, no. we, we kind of chatted about that, but it's fine yeah. if no one else agrees with me. But it is, I think a fun experiment to try for a s small amount of your day to say, I'm going to stand in the face of time and I'm going to say it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, what's possible? What is possible? We have time to change climate change. We have time to heal past wounds. We have to, we, if there is no such thing as time, the impact that I can make within my small life could, could heal in a deeper way. And I don't feel the pressure of if we're constantly at the edge of like apocalypse tomorrow, which we've been at since, you know, I guess like since we were hiding under desks in, in like nuclear tests in our classroom, mm -hmm. like tomorrow, you know, yep. you know, seconds to midnight, right? If we're always there, then we never have time to do all these other things. We don't have time to take care of like, oh, you know, this specific group that has this specific, oh, we don't have time. We have bigger things. We never have time. If, oh, indigenous people are only like 0.4% of the population. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for African-American boys. We don't, have, we don't have time for anything if we're always right at the brink of complete and total extinction. <laughs> like, of course you don't have time for anything, right? But if we can stand in the face of that, I think it's an act of transgression. I think we can say, I don't believe this. I don't believe those milliseconds on the clock. I don't believe that this is how we measure the world, reality, or my life. I think we can find the courage and strength to make deep impact. I mean, in one sense, that's the kind of insight that you get uh, from meditating, perhaps, or watching a David Lynch television show where you just see somebody sweeping for five minutes and he's, I mean, obviously he's saying, stop thinking about this the way you normally do. But it's also, I would guess, Karen, the kind of experience you would think maybe could be conveyed in a, you could make a virtual reality, a world without time. And this, now you're in the timeless world. And at least to practice that, to then come out into the world and go, oh. I mean, it's, it's yeah, almost- people as definitely as lose yeah. sense of, whatever this world's time right. is when they go into VR. I mean, that would be the point. No I mean, for me, the point of VR, if there is one, the point would be there's a sensibility that may be so foreign to people right now that you've got to enter into what that, the, a world where those rules hold so that you can, oh, and then come out and, and manifest differently. That's the hope, I think. I, I like the feeling in VR when I feel like I'm walking without walking, I'm moving without moving. It feels like I'm in a dream. And that's beautiful. When we're in a dream, we're processing the unprocessable. You know, we're, pro we're, we're looking at the things that happened in life that rarely we can even form into a coherent story because it's just so weird. The real world is really weird. And I think VR can be a place where we can dream but I get to invite you into my dream, and that's pretty cool. So let me, let me share with you my, my bad trip fear. So just as if I'm taking acid on a beautiful college campus with my best friends, and we're tripping out about everything and having a great time and all that, there'll be a moment at which I realize, oh, I'm getting to have this trip in this beautiful Ivy League campus because I'm a privileged white person in America who got good SATs to get into this place and there's people right now on whose backs this is resting. Likewise, I can be in VR and say, oh, now I'm having a transformative Buddhist experience and I'm reconnecting with the cosmos of the blah, blah, but I'm doing it on components that were assembled by Chinese kids losing their fingers, well, using rare earth for? metals. Hmm? Who do you, whose mind do you think we're trying to change? Maybe we're trying to change privileged people's minds. Right, but using, Maybe. but we're using technology, we're building, we're taking technologies that are coming from, you know, the, the, the sending slaves into caves to get rare earth metals and where this, I mean, you, you know better than anyone where this stuff goes to die is on, you know, uh, totally. uh, Native American reservations totally. are, are the, the toxic waste dump for, for all of our disposed Oculus version ones or whatever. Totally. But that's what I mean. Maybe we're hacking a class that we need to get to. We need to talk to them. We need them to experience themselves and connect back to the community. You know, I think it's a place you can find people. I, I agree that it, it sh I don't believe in a kind of utopia where like everybody is in a headset. 
all the time? Like, that's crazy yeah. to me. But can this device access a certain type of people? You know, there's a lot of people with privilege and money are super excited about this. Maybe they should have a, an experience that helps connect them to their collective unconscious. So even the though that they might intend to continue sure. their escape sure. from the rest of us, which is what we know the billionaires really want, right? They, yeah. they, they, want, they have bunkers. I mean, they are trying to drive their car fast enough never to smell their own exhaust. And they're leaving that on us. I mean, and they're build, I've, I've met they're building bunkers. But even if they want to escape and you put the goggles on them and then because it's subversive, we give them an experience that makes them realize, oh my God, there is no escape. I'm really here. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> so the problem is like, that I want to figure out is what do you make now? What's the thing to do? Because there's so much hypothetical, there's so much philosophy, there's so much rhetoric. And then on the other side, you've got these companies that are like, look, you might think I'm the evil empire, but I'm the one that's giving you the tools because it's a matter of like getting those parts out of those mines in China and building the damn thing that you're gonna do. So now that you have the damn thing that you're talking about all of these wonderful things that could happen with, what the hell do you make, right? And th this show for me this year was about like taking stock of that, taking inventory and go like, we have come this far in these five years that are built on the, st the shoulders of giants uh, that came the 30 years before and great, now you've got the thing that came out a week and, and a half ago, but what are you gonna do now with that thing, right? And and do you make micro experiences that have a very targeted desired effect? Do you make these like scalable worlds that have infinite permeability right. and, 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 and mutability? And, and is that enough? I mean, is it Minecraft? Is Minecraft the world that we need to save us all? The question is, if we have either no concern for time whatsoever or just a little bit of time left because we're super toast. Or we don't believe in time. Yeah. I got it. Take, <laughs> I no. would say we should build a community. I mean, obviously well, a, you knew that's what I was going to say, right? right? I like, mean, that seems to be the obvious yeah. answer for both of you. I mean, you both do VR, AR, AI stuff, but when I look at you, you're both community organizers. I mean, you literally, I mean, both made communities around, uh, uh, communities of practice. And, so, and I think that's the immune system, right? Like, if we're, we could spin out all day about what possible terrible future, what possible amazing future we could build, but how do we protect against that or how do we make sure we're building the world we want to live in? And I think it's that immune system, which is the community. If we make it so that the community is strong enough to maintain its voice and to maintain our values, I think that it, it wouldn't matter as much what one of us makes because all of us will understand what we're Right, we could towards. all be making it all the time, which is like the reality that we're all making all the time together already kind of in a way. And it's just the VR is just an excuse. Yeah. For and, us to all and just a talk. Beautiful about stuff. metaphor for what's going on here. It's like saying, oh, imagine we built this reality that you could program. We did. We're <laughs> living in one already. Yeah. You know, you're living in one you're already. An active participant in your reality. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Amelia, for playing yeah. on Team Human. Thank you can you. find out more about her work and writing at studioamelia.com. You can learn more about Karam and VRTO at karamsongs.com or virtualreality.to. You can also find links to their work and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm. Articles based on my monologues can be found on Medium along with annotated archives of all of our shows. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our associate producer is Josh Chapdelin. Our virtual futurist is Luke Robert Mason. Team Human is produced and engineered by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks also to everyone at VRTO for hosting this event. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Thanks. <laughs>
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.